0: Hello and welcome to At The Source. I'm Alex and this is Karis. This is a podcast about food stories. We love talking about food. And eating it. And now we're on a mission to record and share interesting food stories from people all over the UK
1: and beyond. Join us as we explore food in all its glory. Welcome to At The Source. We're in Haywards Heath today with Sam Bilton, a food historian, writer and cook. As you know, if you listen to any of our previous episodes, this is right up our street, and we're both really excited to find out more about Sam and everything she does. Aside from having a Master's in Culinary Arts and reaching the final on Channel 4's My Kitchen Rules UK a few years back, Sam is also a regular blogger and runs cookery courses from her home. As usual, we've picked someone with a lot going on. We could talk to Sam all day about what she does, but given we've only got about 30 or 40 minutes, we're particularly interested in hearing about Sam's path into food history And her Supper Club series, Repast, which combines her love of cooking with food of the past. Welcome, Sam. Well, thank you. Or we should say thank you for having us. In your home and providing us with delicious gooseberry cake and cheese scones. It smells amazing. I'm trying really hard to eat it quietly in the background. (laughs) You're going to have to wait. Oh, okay. So,
0: Sam, as you probably know, we always start our podcast with one question, Mm -hmm. which is, what is your first memory of food?
2: I you know I thought about this and it's really hard to pinpoint because um, I think food's always been important to me. But I do remember making Christmas puddings with my grandmother, my late grandmother, who sadly died this year. Um, one hundred and two, you said. Yes, yeah, she was one hundred and two. It's amazing. And she wasn't a fancy cook, but she was a, a simple cook. But she made the most amazing pastry. I mean, literally, uh. <laughs> I have never ever tasted pastry like my grandmother used to make and she basically was still making pastry right up until she went into home at the age of about 96 so that's impressive uh, yeah
1: yeah yeah and so you were making christmas puddings with your grandma as your first
2: yeah so yeah. we made uh, um i mean and I, and I this is my, as an adult, this is what I think I remember as my first food memory. I'm sure I could probably go back and find something else, but we made Christmas puddings and it's a, I don't know that we did it on Stir Up Sunday, but the tradition is mm. to get all the members of the household to have a stir and all the rest of it. Um, but I um, remember making them when I was probably four or five. And then when I was about 15, she produced this pudding one year for Christmas and said, this is one of the puddings you helped me make when you were That's like, amazing. Five. Oh. So
0: she literally kept it for that yeah.
2: long. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's... Um, and I don't know that she used a recipe in the cookbook that she gave me, but uh, which was from one of her ancestors, but it's certainly... Um, yeah, I think everyone has, has their own tweaks to things. So, yeah, it was... I think that's one of the earliest things I remember.
1: Now, how did that pudding taste? I have to know...
2: It it tasted good, yeah. I mean I think the thing with plum puddings is or anything like that is so much sugar in it and it's preserved fruit anyway <laughs> and so much alcohol. Um, you know, I I think we all thought it was going to be a bit mouldy, but my grandmother's house was like a fridge. She <laughs> didn't have okay. eating. So I think mean, there was any danger of it ever going off. I think it would have lasted another ten years easily. It's great, it's like a fine wine or something. Yeah.
1: So that segues quite nicely into talking about your entry into food history. So mm-hmm. your grandmother gave you a book.
2: Yes, yeah, so she actually gave me um, her copies of Mrs. Beaton. Um, one is from 1911 and one was from 1894. Amazing. So um, these are books that have been passed down to her from her mother and relatives. And inside uh, the 1894 copy, um, there was a handwritten book by her great-aunt Eliza, who... Um, I guess, was in service. We don't know much about Great Aunt Eliza, so she was my grandmother's grandmother's sister. (laughs) It's quite far back. Quite far back. And the notebook is dated from 1871, so we can be pretty sure that they're Victorian recipes.
0: And we've actually got these in front of us now, and
2: I've taken some photos which we'll put on the website, but
0: it must have been so amazing to open what is already a, a real treasure of this old yeah. Mrs Beaton's book and then find this handwritten notebook yeah. inside. Yeah. Tre- it is family treasure.
2: It is, yeah. And it's, I mean, I've always had the interest in food and history. Uh, it took me a while to kind of realise that I was fascinated by the his- history of food specifically. Um, I've always cooked I'm from, you know, my family and my mum and my grandmothers were both all very good cooks. Um, And then I think, you know, I I started getting these old cookery books and being more and more fascinated by these old cookery books. And we sort of covered food histories of the element and element in the MA. So um, how old were you at this point? Uh, When I received this? Uh, it wasn't that long ago, um, probably in my early to mid-30s. Okay,
0: so.
2: so you'd already done your Masters in Culinary Arts at that point? No, right? no, I didn't do that until after I had um, my second son, Alex. So yeah, it was, and that was only, well actually I said it was only, it was about 10, year, um, <laughs> 10 years ago, so I was in my late 30s. <laughs> so do you think that receiving these books from your
0: grandma may have influenced your decision to to combine food and history in a yeah, more professional so. way.
2: And I think my mum had this um, copy, Good Housekeeping, and at the very back there was like this picture of an Elizabethan feast, which I'm sure is entirely inaccurate, because I think it was probably <laughs> just uh, something that this book is from like the 60s or 70s. Um, <laughs> it was just what they thought that they would eaten in Elizabethan in England. I'd, and I do remember as a child being fascinated by this picture of these roast swans and these elaborate pies and and I think really when I received this these books I was like you know actually there's there's you know there's there's some real gems in amongst these cookery books so back to great
1: great great aunt Eliza's handwritten notes did you take some time to decipher them because the handwriting is obviously quite. Old fashioned,
2: yeah, it does. It is quite. Um, when you read handwritten books, it is yeah. On one hand, it's incredibly beautiful. In my handwriting mm. is awful, but mm-hmm. tell um, me about it. <laughs> it's a lost art, though, isn't <laughs> it? It is you know? absolutely. It's definitely a lost art because we don't nowadays. We don't need to really write, do we? Because mm-hmm. we've got computers.
0: Quite often, um, I when I do have to write. My hand, you know, we just went on holiday and I did a load of postcards for my grandma and Dave's parents. And my hand was like dropping off by the end of it because I was so not used to writing anymore. Yeah.
2: So, I mean, it's yeah, it did take a, it did take a while. And then again, the reason I think she was probably in service, some of the quantities in the recipes are immense. So her <laughs> recipe for plum pudding. I mean, I've had to scale down quite considerably by like eighths. Because wow. It's, it's, it's like a ridiculous amount of fruit and suet and all the rest of it.
0: So yeah. you've actually cooked from your great-aunt Eliza's?
2: Yes, made, I do make her plum pudding. That's the one. And I, when I do my Christmas pudding um, sort of masterclasses and demos, I that's the one I use. Because plum pudding or Christmas pudding is essentially, it's the same ingredients, but people have different um, takes mm. on it. So she actually says to use, um, I think, um, prunes I think yeah plum pudding she always she says oh no with plums she actually says plums that's interesting well, it is because I've I've always taken that to be prunes mm. rather than you wouldn't want to put fresh plums in I wouldn't have thought
1: yeah and I was I think we went to a talk um with Annie, Gray. With Annie Gray, and yeah. she was saying that plum was actually just any dried fruit. Yeah, for them absolutely. As well. so, yes, yeah. it was, yeah. It's hard to tell.
2: Yeah, so she's got the currants, and then she's got the plums, and then the candied peel. Um, and, it, you know, it's... it's. Uh, so flour, breadcrumbs? Breadcrumbs, yeah. It is actually
0: really hard to read, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it does take... One um, glass of brandy. And I think it's some of the measurements as well. And then the thing with like eggs, you have to remember that eggs then they would have been using much smaller eggs. That yeah, which comes becomes a problem when you're scaling this down because I tried. You know, she says originally six eggs, and I'm thinking, well, that's probably three or four hmm. eggs now, large eggs. Um, but uh, and she yeah.
0: says to boil for fifteen hours.
2: Yeah, but this is an immense pudding. Right. I mean, if you okay. made this pudding <laughs> as a one pudding on its so, own, and it would have been. Um, it, this pudding wouldn't have been mold, in a, a mould or a bowl. This would have been gathered up in a cloth and boiled mm. in a massive um, a massive pot of water rather than being boiled in a... I make them, when I make them, I do them in a pudding basin. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I don't... But I still think it takes a long time to make a Christmas, proper Christmas pudding. I mean, you're still looking at a good number of hours, mm. even for a smaller one. Have you experimented mm. with any other recipes in there? I haven't yet. Um, I'm looking, I'm, I would like to do the ginger. A lot of this is puddings, I should mm. say. So I'd like to do the ginger pudding because that, that's another passion of mine ginger and gingerbread. And um, But uh, yeah, I haven't made anything other than her plum pudding yet. you going to have to keep an eye out mm, and see yeah. when you do decide to experiment
1: with the other ones.
0: This is something that has come up in previous podcast episodes as well. Um, for example, when we spoke to Emma from the Museum of Kitchenalia, mm. in that recipes were not the same as you get in like a a a cookbook these days fits a lot of different things whereas before it would be here's this ingredient this ingredient this ingredient mix it all together and cook it till it's done yeah and now we have this thing where we have this step by step like you must preheat the oven to this like you must put exactly this much seasoning in and um looking at these notes she obviously had a real feel for what she was doing and yeah and these instructions were enough for people, yeah. whereas uh, now I think everyone needs this hand-holding all the way through the process. I
2: think with the um, recipe books, they're, they're li- literally an aid memoir. So she's probably had a plum pudding somewhere or the lemon pudding and has asked the cook or whoever, the friend who's made it, how did you make that? It's listed down the ingredients. Mm-hmm. And actually my own grandmother, when we cleared her house, she had similar vein lots of sort of on bits of paper written notes and very scant details mm. of how to yeah. cook them and even when i write th- um sort of when i uh, do recipes for the supper club and i'm looking at an old recipe book i don't you know i i put very brief instructions because i cook all the time they're not i don't write them unless i'm putting them on my blog i don't write them for other people mm. to use they they they're purely food. for me but that is, to, to that is the case because these people knew how to cook. Yeah. So these, when you find these handwritten recipe books, they are written by cooks for themselves usually, not to really be necessarily passed on to the general public at least. They maybe within a family, but not. So in 100
1: years when we discover your laptop, yeah. we, we look at it, <laughs> it will
2: just be a whole bunch of notes that probably only you'll understand. Possibly, yeah. It depends because occasionally some of my guests at the Supper Club will come along and say or contact me. I'll say, I really love what you did with that um, chicken korma on the curries, the curry evenings I do are always very popular. Can you send me the recipe? So I then have to go, oh, okay, <laughs> maybe put a few more instructions mm. in just to make sure that it makes sense. Um, yeah. Where did you start learning your cooking skills? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I did cook. With my mom and my grandmother, obviously, as I said, I remember cooking uh, uh, Christmas pudding with my grandmother in particular. But I think, I mean, when I was at school, we still had home economics, mm. so I did learn a lot at school. Mm. Um, and I do think it's a crying shame now that we don't. It's not as taught as widely. I know some schools do, but it's um, yeah. I learned. I think I learned an awful lot at school, and that was probably backed up by what I le- I'd learned at home. Mm. Um, I mean, my mum was always quite happy for me to mess around in the kitchen.
1: That's always good, though, because mm, yeah. not every parent is is
2: happy for their child to. No, I'm a bit fling flour around, and <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I can be. My husband always says I'm a bit uh, a bit too shouty with the boys, <laughs> but um, yeah, to be fair to them, they 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 they're very much happy that their mum cooks, mm. and uh, they're more than happy to eat anything I cook, which is lovely. Um, but they don't feel the desire necessarily to go and get into the kitchen themselves and cook.
0: So, at what point did you think, "Hmm, I'm onto something here. I think this could be this could be what I do."
2: I think I spent I was spending so long cooking and looking at historical recipes and trying to recreate them, and I thought, "Well, you know, I'd like to do this for other people." It's lovely doing it for my family, and they, I always get great feedback from them. But um, I, I felt that you know it was time to. I wanted to give it to somebody else. Mm. And it's, you know, it's tricky getting a book published in this day and age, especially a cookbook. I mean, yes, it's a, a big in terms of books. It's a, one of the most popular genres and the highest sales. But there's a lot of people out there doing it. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to sort of you, if it's what I do is actually quite niche. Mm-hmm. So for a publisher, you know, they want to make money at the end of the day. Absolutely. So, um, so yeah, I think I thought, well, I started my blog, but then I thought, you know, actually, I'm going to – I've been to a few supper clubs. I thought I'm going to take a step in that direction, and, um, and it means – it gives me an excuse to do even more experimentation with mm. historical recipes. So the name of
1: your supper club is Repast, mm-hmm. which I really like because it, you know, double entendre – well, not really double entendre, but it has meaning in French as well as in English. Yeah. Talk to us a bit about repasts and and the th- the thought process behind how you would run each of those because I know that they've they've got different themes Yes. And, you know but there's one coming up in September that's Roman yeah which thankfully you're not actually serving dormouse no, but no I thought that was pretty cool
2: yeah I mean it's. Um... I'm going to be honest, a lot of times the themes are quite selfish. It's things I like I like cooking and I do love Roman food. So whenever I get an opportunity, so for example, 13th of September, although it is Friday the 13th and a lot of people are like, oh my God, that's a really unlucky day to do anything. Um, I'm not superstitious, number one. And number two, it happens to be the date of the Feast of the Capitoline Trio, which is Jupiter, Juno and Minerva. So I thought, well, I'd be daft not to really, wouldn't I? Because I do try and tie the themes in quite often with a historic event or an anniversary. So I've done um, the 200th anniversary of the death of Jane Austen. It's not always around death, but I also did the death of Shakespeare. (laughs) You did 4th of July. I did 4th 4th of 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 July, July. there you go, yeah. And that was an interesting one, actually, because um, I'd I'd done a Burns Night one at, at the beginning of the year. And, uh, I, that sold out really quickly. So I thought, well, okay, maybe I'll try 4th of July. And, you know, again, that was really popular. And it was such a fun one to, um, look at because I looked at 19th century cookbooks and um, a couple of 18th century American cookbooks. But they had, most of the settlers would have probably been taking over books from this country at mm. that point. So, um, I did look at the Amelia Simmons book, but uh, most of the recipes came from the Virginia Housewife and Fanny Farmer. So, Virginia Housewife was by Mary Randolph, and Fanny Farmer wrote the Boston Cookbook, which had been it was a bestseller, it was a bit like Mr. The American Business Beatons. Okay. So, yeah, so, and it was, you know, my view was everyone was like, why are you going to do American food? American food's rubbish. And I was like, well. It's always no, been that way. It, no, and it, it, well, it still isn't that way. There's some amazing food in America. People just have know. a very fixed, yeah. View on.
0: Yeah.
2: So, what did you serve out of so, interest So, um, I did, because I did my research and I said oh, the Virginia Housewife book was really, really interesting because that sort of, written sort of in the, the south so we had they she has a wonderful recipe for these sweet potato buns which are served as sort of the dinner rolls i usually make um sourdough homemade sourdough um for the supper clubs but because they, she had this recipe i did the sweet potato buns they had um fanny farmers corn oysters but they were just corn fritters but i love the name so and I, I have to admit this wasn't a, a, a fanny farmer recipe but i served them with bacon jam Oh, because obviously Amer- Americans love this idea of the savoury and the sweet together, so baconising everything. Yeah, but it's bacon <clears throat> jam. If you've never tried it, is yeah, it's the yeah, it's amazing. And we had, I had, they found this recipe for barbecued shoat, and I was like, well, I've got to do that because <laughs> uh, <but> exactly.
1: <laughs> it's a, it's a, a name for
2: it's an, apparently an old name, uh, an old American name for a a young hog. Okay, shoat, yeah. Um I has to be said I didn't do a whole hog. I did, um, I think I did a leg of pork. Um, oh, barbecued shook. And it actually isn't barbecued at all. Oh. <laughs> but that's, but that, but not in our term, not what we would call mm. barbecue. Mm. Um, it is slow cooked, but I did actually put mine on the barbecue for about 30 minutes and then slow cooked it. And it's the sauce that gives its name. So the sauce was made with mushroom ketchup. Um, red wine and water and some herbs and garlic. Um, that doesn't sound. It, it doesn't. It doesn't sound out of place in a menu. No, no, and it was. It's. It was really, really nice. Quite the sauce was quite sweet, so I did hand the sauce around separately. and say look, you might want to. It depends on your taste buds. If mm. you like quite sweet things, then pour away. But. Uh,
0: but then I think if you're going to a supper club that specifically uh, focuses on historic food, then yeah. you're going to be quite a brave culinary have a brave yeah. culinary palate anyway because yeah. otherwise you just go to mcdonald's
2: well quite yeah um and then again mary randolph had a recipe for um donuts a yankee dish as she calls it they so looked good they were they were rather bigger than i had anticipated no if was such a, thing as a too big donut <laughs> they were, but yeah they were supposed to have two on the plate and i was like oh my god they were immense after you've eaten all these courses because they'd had a a cheese, sort of like cheese souffle, which was a Fanny Farmer recipe, which used breadcrumbs, great idea for using up breadcrumbs as a base. Um, so they'd had quite a filling meal, so I did put the extras on the table. I was like, please knock yourselves out, but I had loads of doughnuts left. <laughs> but the that was inspired, the ice cream was inspired by Thomas Jefferson because um and also the souffle was inspired by Thomas Jefferson because he was in himself a gourmet. he has been uh, ambassador to France. Mm. And he's credited for bringing back the f- ice cream recipe and an I ice cream maker that. yeah, to America. As I said on the night, I'm not entirely convinced that's true. I think other there might have been other immigrants that came to America that had, knew how to make ice cream for Thomas Jefferson. But that is the story. He yeah. just popularised it, I guess. Well, mm. exactly. But he... Um, He had recipes for like for chocolate ice cream, which is why I included that on the menu for dessert. But the big cheese uh, soufflé I served, he was apparently presented in eighteen o two with this massive cheese. It was one hundred and thirty five pounds. About four foot across and 18 inches high. It's <laughs> almost as big as you. I know, you know? I was just thinking <laughs> yeah, that. So... And I also look like a massive cheese. <laughs> so I thought that that was be a great, you know, I, love, I like to have a story behind what I cook, if I can, not just, you mm. know, this is, you know, so when I did Jane Austen, I tried to, her sister-in-law had written a handwritten book, funny enough, um, which has been subsequently published as a cookbook. Um, and I tried to use a lot of Martha Lloyd's recipes for that particular supper club to sort of say, well, this is what Jane Austen might have eaten when she was at home with her brother and sister-in-law.
0: How long does it take from the point that you've decided on the theme to the point that you've got the recipe, the recipes, you've tested them and you're ready for your supper club guests? Because it sounds like a lot of work.
2: Well, I've been doing this for quite a few years now. So I'm now at that point where I can cherry pick because... The thing with recipes, I was explaining this the other day to um, a group of National Trust volunteers, uh, is that the recipe writing is quite fluid. There isn't like a cut-off point. So, for example, medieval food, which is really a legacy of Roman food, is heavily spiced. Mm. But then equally, if you look at Tudor food, they're still using spices. And then gradually, in the 18th century, they used less mm-hmm. um, or different flavourings come in. Um, but they're still there. I mean, we still use things like cinnamon today. And um, But and actually, interestingly, we've almost come full circle because we're really into spicy food now in this country. I was just going to say that. Whether it's Southeast, Southeast Asian
1: or Middle Eastern or African, all of these things are coming not so much more popular, but they're just they're becoming more accessible. Yeah. And I think that's so much better because... I don't know, salt and pepper gets a bit boring.
2: Yeah, no, definitely. But and yet
1: it, we're using spice in a very
0: different way to the reason that the medieval cooks would I, use spice. I,
1: can you, I think that is actually... That's a myth. If you were saying yeah, say about say the rotten It's
2: rotten a myth. Me- yeah, it's not Busted. true. Busted. So Mark Meltonville, who's a very um, famous food historian, um, basically said, you know, it, he said, said to me once, it's rotten meat was rotten meat. 200 years ago, 300 years ago, 400 years ago, just as it's rotten meat now. Mm-hmm. No amount of spices is disguising that. Yep. So if you've ever had really high game, I mean, I, I had a lecturer when I did my MA who used to work at one of the big London hotels and he said they would have customers who would come in and they would only order the pheasant or the partridge if it was literally falling down by its neck because they would hang it in the mm-hmm. larder by its neck. And it was falling down Ross and So this is probably a bit disgusting to be discussing on a food podcast. Mm. But he said they liked it so high to the point where it, it was almost maggoty. It was, but, you know, wow. no amount of spices covering that up. Yeah. So yeah. it is, I mean, I mean, spices were bling in the medieval right. period. They were the way you showed your wealth. So if you could afford to spice something really heavily, mm. and when you see, when you do get a recipe from that period... Um, probably a bit later, actually, because like the form of curry is very, very sparse with its in terms mm. of quantities. Mm. Uh, in, in instructions, it is literally a list of ingredients mostly. But uh, they used a phenomenal amount to the point where you think. I mean, I, part of me thinks that they may have because they've taken a long time to get here because obviously they didn't couldn't fly things in. Mm. Um, they may have not been quite so potent. Mm. But a lot of it, I think, was well if you could spice something really heavily. You were saying to your guests, "Look how rich I am." Mm. because they're really expensive.
1: And they used salt as a currency for quite a while there too, didn't they? Yeah, so it's um, interesting. Really interesting. Now, while we're talking about meat, I want to go back to the Roman food. Oh, yes. The The first question I have is, have you ever had a go at making garum?
2: I haven't. I have to admit, when I use fish sauce, I just use Thai fish sauce. I have thought about it. But, um, I mean, basically, you've got to leave fish guts to <coughs> ferment in the sun. And one, we don't necessarily have the climate in this country. I mean, uh, today is a prime example. It's July and we're, um, it's not very I'm wearing a know. jumper. Yeah, it's, it's not very sunny. Um, but, uh, and also, I would, from a health and safety perspective, <laughs> I, I, I prefer to bite off the shop floor and go, you know, I know that's, that's not going to kill anyone. That's fair enough. And I, I assume that your husband and kids would not be happy with you. <laughs> no, your cat no. would be happy. My cats would be very happy if I had. I was making garum. I suspect they might end up in it, though, though which would also be a bit of a worry. So, no, I haven't. Okay.
0: i
1: am mm. yet to meet anyone who has. No. But I want to go back to Roman food and dormouse. Yes. So, obviously, you're not going to be using a dormouse because no. I don't.
2: I, I think they're a protected species. I'm not even sure they're, that, uh, they're native to this country anymore. I mean, they may be, but um, I've, I've looked them up online and they look like a bit like a squirrel. I'm not going to use squirrel either. So, they are, yeah, okay, so what are you going to use? <laughs> so the recipe is actually, I, because I like, I, say, I like to inject a bit of fun, if possible, a story behind it. So the recipe is actually for a, a Lucanian sausage, which is a, a recipe by Marcus Gavius Apicius. And it's, it's just pork-based. With um, herbs and spices, and I'm going to shape those into probably like little cofters and make them look. I had, I did buy sugar mouse mould, but I don't think they're going to translate (laughs) to the sugar (laughs) mouse mould. But
0: so the dish itself is called Trimalchio's Dormouse. Yes, you say that it's based on sausage. So do you think that it ever? involved a dormouse or do you think it's
2: oh, the no, shape of the no, no. looks he, like a little They mouse. did eat dormice so, oh. so Trimalchio um, is a character out of um, a play uh, called Satyricon and he has this amazing feast and it's it's really sort of taking the mickey um, out of uh, Roman excess I, mm. I believe so um, and one of the things is they list the, the things he serves at this bank, massive banquet and one of the things is stuffed dormice um, drizzled with honey and sprinkled with poppy seeds and on the same platter they also happen to have sausages so i feel i feel justified in making the dormice a sausage <laughs> not serving real dormice but that's that's where it comes from um and he, you know they he has things like flamingo tongues and it's all very weird and wonderful
0: can't imagine there's a lot of meat on a flamingo
2: tongue i wouldn't have thought so no. imagine it's, it's the same as a duck tongue yeah yeah so, I mean, they. I think the, it's like a lot of recipe books from until really you get to the 19th century. A lot of the food represented is proper high-end cuisine. It's not what most people are eating. Mm. It was uh, purely about showing off and saying, "Look how yeah, rich I am." And yeah, um, yeah, definitely. So all the recipes have been taken. Oh, I don't. I don't read Latin, so they've been taken from <laughs> translated versions of Episcis's, um book but he in himself was a gourmet he's a bit like Thomas Jefferson I was talking about he's given his name has been given to this book he didn't write it they the assumption is that it's been it's a collection of recipes written by possibly his cook or uh, maybe a number of cooks Mm. and they decided to give it his name I guess yeah to sort of help promote it. Do you test a few of them out before you decide on your final menu? Yes, yeah, invariably, yeah. Especially when I'm dealing with a new era. I mean, I've cooked Roman food quite a, a lot before, but uh, if it's something I've never made before ever, obviously I test it an, a number of times mm. to make sure I get it right. And I always try to put a modern spin on it because I whilst I do want to preserve the taste of the past, I want, them, I want the food to be edible. Yeah. Yeah. So, I I mean, well, as I say, with the quantities of spices, I mean, some of them are horrendous amounts of spices, you know, like a whole ounce of ginger and you think, oh, cinnamon (laughs) or mace. um, And mace particularly is that Mm. I love as a spice, but you wouldn't want, or cloves as well. I wouldn't want to have a whole ounce of cloves in, like, a pudding or something. So, yeah, I try to tone it down a bit and um, maybe put a modern spin on it. And I don't beat egg whites for eight hours or... (laughs) Like, it's like a long to time to be egg whites.
1: Best, your favourite time period to eat in?
2: Uh, yeah, I, I can't answer that because I really, I love all food history. I, I really do like, because I love spices, I do like Roman food and medieval food, although I haven't done a medieval supper club. I don't think I've done one, actually, since I did the Magna Carta one in uh, 2015. But, yeah, I like, I love spices. Anything that involves spices. But then, you know, I love the British Raj mm. and actually... Victorian curries aren't as highly spicy as you might think they would be, but they were rather fond of chilli. I think they made a bit of chilli overdrive, which surprises a lot of people. Mm. I tried to tone that down as well, because some of the recipes, you look at the amount of chillies, you're like, oh, no, I don't think so. (laughs) Knowing them was probably something to do with aphrodisiacs. Possibly, (laughs)
1: yeah. yeah. (laughs) Or um, summoning
0: the dead or something.
1: Probably, yeah. Victorians were really into
0: ghosties and Mm. um, all of that kind of stuff. So um, for people at home who maybe are thinking of setting up a supper club themselves, what would be your advice for a supper club that you're running from your home? Yeah. What would be your kind of top
2: tips? I, I mean, a lot of people say, do I mind having strangers in my house? And I think it's, you know, the people that you get that come to a supper club because it's a communal table, they tend to be quite outgoing, mm. gregarious people anyway. Um, so I'd say firstly, don't worry about that. I mean, I've never, I've been doing this for... Um, properly for three years. Um, I sort of tested the waters in 2015 um, to see whether how it would work and how it would be received because I live in a quite a small town in Sussex. Mm. Um, I didn't know how it would go down but everyone that comes really enjoys the experience and you get the, those the people that come are the, those people that, that would enjoy that experience. They enjoy eating out and meeting new people. Mm. Um, I'd say just go for it. I mean, just, maybe don't be too ambitious with the first couple. Um, I know, I think one of the first ones I did was a Venetian one for, um, you know, carnival in, mm. in February. And I got it into my head. I was going to make these these Venetian fritters, which had to be cooked at the last minute. You couldn't cook <laughs> them in advance. And uh, I've only got a tiny, tiny deep fat fryer. <laughs> it took me a long time hmm. and I didn't start early enough. So the dessert was rather late coming out because I was doing all these little fritters because I could only cook about two at a time. So yeah, I, if you can do, keep it simple and do try and do stuff that can be prepared in advance and sort of maybe made hot in the night or, you know, slow cooking's great for that. And how can people book your supper clubs if they want to come? So I've got a website. Um, you can either go to sambilson.com and there's a page on there or uk.
1: And we'll put those links on the on the show notes as well. Because the sambilton.com website also has your blog on it. Yes, so it does. So that's a really yeah. good spot to go.
2: What would you like to do next? Well, I'd love to write a book. I really would love to write a book. Um, as I said, I'm fascinated by spices, but that has been done. But another passion of mine is forgotten fruits. So I know we were talking earlier about meddlers. Mm. And I, I love, and that's how it started. There's a meddler tree at my son's school. And I used to look at these fruit and I used to think such show every year they would just they just they sort of plop off the tree onto the ground and splatter everywhere. You see, so you have gotta be things you can do with this. Such a waste. It is such a waste. And I hate food any food waste. But uh yeah, it's I think it's so many of the fruits that were popular and also when I'm looking at recipes all the time, I'm seeing these fruits come up, um, like quinces and seville oranges, which we only use for marmalade. And yet actually a lot of recipes were, you know, when you read them, they season, rather than lemon juice, they used to use the Seville orange to season okay. dishes all the time, far more than lemons. Occasionally you'll see lemons, but really it was the bitter orange. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, so, I, I you know, it's things like the Seville orange and the um, things, gooseberries and fruits that sort of, we maybe don't answer popular these days, but I think they should be. mm And I'm sort of looking at different, reviving different recipes from the past. That's what I'd like to do anyway.
0: Well, I would definitely buy that book.
1: I would definitely buy that book
2: and I would cook lots of things out of it. Because as I said before, I've just got this bizarre
1: obsession with with meddlers just because they're so fascinating that most people I ever speak to, what's
2: a meddler? Mm. Well, let me tell you about meddlers. And, And, And actually they've been the most popular blog posts I've ever done. Uh, Mm. On my blog, Comfortably Hungry, uh, concerning meddlers, because people will often comment, going, I've got this tree in my garden and I don't know what to do. And I've been on your blog and you've done, you've made a cake with them and you've made Mm. mincemeat with them and Mm. I didn't know you could do all these things. And they're actually really versatile of probably all the forgotten fruits, Mm. uh, what I consider to be forgotten fruits. I think meddler's probably one of the most versatile because it can be used in sweet and savoury dishes. There you go. That
1: is your goal to go and learn about meddlers and some other forgotten fruit until Sam brings out her books so that we can <sighs> yeah. not have to do research ourselves because she'll have done it for us. Thanks so much for having us in your home, Sam. It's been brilliant talking to you. If you enjoyed Sam's story, I think you'll probably enjoy quite a few of our other podcast episodes. In particular, you can take a look at Emma Kay's episode uh, and you can find that at, at thesource.com. You can also find us on Twitter at thesource and That's it. Yeah, you can find the podcast anywhere and we'd love it if you could recommend it to your friends and give us some feedback.
2: Over and out.